martial law. I was in the army myself. Medic. 20 years. Posh cunts. Telling thick cunts to kill poor cunts. It's the army for you. It's all a lie. They don't care about you. You're just a piece of meat to them. Piece of meat. That clip comes from the film 71, a 2014 British film that I'm going to be reviewing and talking about in this episode. And that just might be one of the best quick working man's definitions of what war really is that I've ever heard. One of the best, most concise posh cunts telling thick cunts to kill poor cunts. Sorry if the C-bomb offends your ears. I actually don't use it very often myself, but this is a British movie set in Northern Ireland and in the UK and in Ireland and in Australia as well, for that matter. Seems like they're just more relaxed about the C-bomb than they are in North America. Welcome to episode 68 of the Dangerous History Podcast, 71, a Dangerous History Movie Review. And I actually was planning on doing my listener email episode next, decided to go ahead on sort of spur of the moment the last day or two because I happened to see this movie and um, it was really good. I mean, it was a dark topic. It was a dark movie, but really good, important stuff with a lot of relevance to the types of themes we cover on this podcast. So I felt compelled to do an episode talking a bit about it, especially considering it's a movie that probably is not well known, especially in the United States, but even in the UK, I don't think it's exactly a big box office smash. The last time I talked about a movie on the Dangerous History Podcast was a long time ago when I did an episode about the film Kill the Messenger. And just like with that movie, I felt compelled to talk about the film on a podcast because, number one, it's very well done from you know a production and acting point of view. Number two, it's historically sound. And third, it is, like I said a minute ago, probably not well known to most people. It's very far from being a big mainstream movie. I only happen to have known about it in this case because Netflix recommended it to me, probably because of the many other films I've watched and have enjoyed and rated highly on Netflix related to Irish history and the various conflicts in Irish history and so on. So, 71 is a 2014 British film directed by Jan Demange. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Jack O'Connell stars in the film as a young British Army recruit, looks to be maybe 18, 19, something like that, named Gary Hook. The film, last I checked anyway, has a 97% positive review rating in Rotten Tomatoes, so very well-reviewed, but... Like Kill the Messenger, which also was well-reviewed, although I don't think it was that highly reviewed, it is a film that at least so far has lost money, despite critical acclaim. Because, of course, you know, it's not endless uh, Transformers fighting or another Marvel movie or whatever, so, you know, why should it make any money? 
It's set, as the film's title indicates, in 1971, which is during what are known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And I am planning on doing some stuff eventually on Irish history because it's something I find very fascinating. And I've studied a pretty fair amount, both in undergrad and graduate school. In fact, I might be leading a study abroad group from my college um, along with a colleague of mine to visit Ireland next kind of late spring, early summertime. So um, Irish history, probably in part because I'm part Irish, but Irish history I've always found so fascinating. The Troubles, if you're not familiar with that term, are something, a series of conflicts and, and disorder and violence that took place in Northern Ireland from the late 1960s through the late 1990s, lasting almost exactly 30 years. And the quick version of the background to this conflict is that in the early 20th century, the Irish nationalist or Republican rebels, as they were known, who wanted Ireland free of British rule, launched an uprising, which eventually achieved success. I forget the exact year. I want to say 1922. They got free state status, which made Ireland kind of like Canada, nominally a part of the British Empire, but for the most part self-governing. And then gradually over the next few decades, Ireland achieved republic status entirely outside the British Commonwealth as it was known at that time. But there was one part of Ireland that was not a part of this process of getting independence and self-government, and that is, of course, Northern Ireland, which remained and still is to this day part of the United Kingdom. It's the six counties in kind of the north, northeastern part of the island. And what made that different was that in those six counties, Protestants were actually a majority of the population, and they overwhelmingly did not want to be part of an independent, Catholic-dominated Irish Republic. And so, under the threat of violence on the part of some of the Protestant groups in the North, the British, when they turned over self-government of the South to the new Republican, I guess it was first free state and then it became a Republic uh, government, which was dominated by Catholic nationalists, they kept the northernmost counties part of the uk because of the protestant majority there although the protestant majority there was not overwhelming it was not huge margin of majority and in fact has dipped a bit in years since as the catholics live up to their reputation and tend to have more kids than the protestants but in this new northern ireland which had a degree of internal local self-government but was dominated by protestants there was a lot of anger on the part of the Catholic population within those northern counties that became known as Northern Ireland, in part because the political system and the police and all that stuff were overwhelmingly dominated by Protestants. The electoral system was heavily rigged in the favor of Protestants against Catholics up there. And there was a lot of discrimination, both formal and informal, against Catholics to a degree that's almost reminiscent of like, you know, the Jim Crow American South in some cases. And given the fact that there was a relatively high degree of socialism within Northern Ireland, that meant having the government totally dominated by Protestant interests allowed them to make things really, really difficult for Catholics to to be, you know, prosperous and live good lives. For example, a lot of the housing in Northern Ireland was controlled one way or another by government agencies. And so if government agencies run housing and that government has 
an explicit prejudice against one group of citizens, it's very easy for them to do things like make it hard for those citizens to get good housing. Another example is a much higher percentage of jobs in Northern Ireland have long been government jobs than would be the case in, say, England, let alone the United States. And so, again, a lot of good jobs in Northern Ireland are one way or another, you know, divvied out by the state. And so if the state is really, really taking sides against the Catholics, it's easy for the state, again, to steer the resources of the economy away from Catholics. Not surprisingly, a lot of Catholics were not happy about this, and many of them also, of course, were Irish nationalists who wanted to be part of a unified Irish Republic and all that stuff, too. In the 60s, a Catholic civil rights movement that was largely modeled on and inspired by the African-American civil rights movement in the United States popped up in Northern Ireland, and there were demonstrations and marches trying to get more fair uh, political representation, trying to get things like the jobs imbalances and the housing problems and the police, another area of the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the Northern Irish police were very, very heavily rigged in favor of the Protestant communities against the Catholics. There was a lot of abuse there. And so you have this peaceful civil rights movement rising up to try to address these grievances. At the same time, you had a more violent underground nationalist movement. You know, some of these are the IRA and other groups like that who wanted to use violence to try and get Northern Ireland out of the UK and get it joined in with the Republic of Ireland. And initially these groups, these violent groups were kind of off to the side and weren't particularly strong. But what happened was when the Northern Irish government began to crack down on the peaceful civil rights movement, it started to drive more and more people into supporting the violent extremists. And so that ultimately caused the violence to escalate. Now, of course, the Protestant communities didn't just sit by and leave it all up to their police, even though the police tended to be more you know, geared towards them and their interests. Still, they felt like the police weren't always doing a good enough job keeping the the Catholic nationalist troublemakers down. And so you started to get what are known as loyalist paramilitary and terrorist groups as well. So you have, on the one hand, Catholic nationalist, you know, peaceful activists. Then you've got Catholic nationalist violent groups. Then you've got the Northern Irish government itself, and then you've got these loyalist paramilitary violent extremist groups as well. And then in the background, for a while anyway, you have the actual UK government. And eventually things got bad enough that the UK government moved in and for decades took over much of running and policing Northern Ireland, including using troops within Northern Ireland. And it was only about 15 years ago or so that agreements started to be made between the big Protestant and Catholic groups, including some of the previously so-called terrorists, that they restored a large degree of peace to Northern Ireland. And while it's not perfect and hasn't made everybody happy, it's at least dramatically brought down the actual violence and has created some cooperation between the Protestant and Catholic communities there. Anyway, so that's the, the really quick overview of the context in which this movie is set. It's actually set one year prior to the famous Bloody Sunday Massacre, which took place in 1972 in the town of Derry in Northern Ireland. 
where a bunch of peaceful demonstrators ended up getting shot at, uh, many of them killed and wounded by British troops. And this, of course, inspired that famous U2 song, Bloody Sunday. It also inspired an excellent movie about the Bloody Sunday Massacre, which is one of the things I'll put in the Amazon links, the affiliate links for the show notes for this episode, aside from 71 itself, because that's another great movie, Bloody Sunday. And Bloody Sunday in 72 was a huge huge milestone in pushing a lot of extremists to be more violent one way or the other. Supposedly, it was one of the greatest recruiting advertisements for the IRA uh, in their history. Lots of people who had previously just wanted to be into peaceful activism started to think that they had to be violent because British troops were now shooting at peaceful protesters. So this film 71 is set a year prior to that, but it is set after, of course, the British troops had been called in to supplement the Northern Irish Police, the RUC, in dealing with the Troubles. So it tells the story primarily focused on this young man. Again, the character's name is Gary Hook, a fairly new recruit, it seems like, to the British Army. Looks like he's maybe finishing up some sort of basic training as the movie starts. The movie actually begins, interestingly, showing a boxing match during training, and then it shows British troops training for several more scenes, and then there's a scene where they're told they're going to be deployed to Belfast, which apparently they were originally going to be going to West Germany as part of, you know, the Cold War garrisons there, I guess. By the way, before I proceed any further, I do want to say there might be some minor plot spoilers in here of sort of like the first half of the movie or so, but um, I'm going to not get into the details of the latter half of the movie. Try not to spoil like the big parts of the plot, but if you're someone who's like super duper touchy about any plot spoilers or whatever, maybe go watch the movie first. I got it on disc as a rental from Netflix. I'm sure you can find it other places as well. It's not... At least as of recording this, it's not on Netflix for streaming, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't show up there soon. But anyway, if you're real touchy about plot spoilers, just go watch the movie first. But I will try not to spoil any of the major plot points of the latter part of the movie, how things turn out, whatever. Anyway, so you have this film starting off with a a very brief kind of British full metal jacket type thing where you've got drill instructors yelling at the at the recruits and everything like that and their training and so on. And then they're told, all right, you guys are going to be sent to Belfast, the you know main city in, uh, nor- of Northern Ireland, the biggest city, the capital city of Northern Ireland. And they're taken aback. They're like, wait a minute, what are we doing? That's like part of our country. It's part of the UK. It would be sort of like if a bunch of American soldiers were being trained to go to Afghanistan or someplace. And then right as they're getting ready to go, they're told, all right, great. We're sending you into, I don't know, Utah, right? So they're getting ready to go. And before leaving, Hook goes and visits his little brother. Now, I wasn't quite clear, and I watched the scene a couple times to see if I could pick up any little tiny clues. I wasn't quite clear as to whether the little brother was in a boarding school or in an orphanage. I couldn't quite tell. He was at some kind of an institution where it seems like, you know, he actually lives there and sleeps there. But Hook goes, and his brother's much younger. His brother's, I don't know, eight, ten years younger, something like that. And he goes and he hangs out with him a little while and they they chat and whatever before Hook gets deployed to Northern Ireland. But 
the kid is either in a boarding school or in a in an orphanage because Hook has to like bring him back and there's a guy working there who kind of reprimands him for for being a little bit late and that sort of thing. I think it might be an orphanage though because Hook doesn't when he's getting ready to be deployed, he doesn't go visit any parents. So that was one of the things that made me think it's an orphanage, not a just a boarding school because you would think a guy getting deployed if he's going to go visit his little brother would also drop by to visit his parents someplace. And it's also um, mentioned that Hook himself had been in this institution, whatever it is. So it seems like it might have been a case of younger brother and older brother both in an orphanage and now older brothers in the army. But that's interesting and has all kinds of, you know, connotations and things about institutionalization. Children being raised by institutions then will gravitate towards institutions when they're adults. A child who's raised either by a strict boarding school or by a state orphanage is not surprisingly might might end up joining the army. Now, once they get to Belfast, they're under the command of a young lieutenant named Armitage, who seems to be quite green. He's this, seems like a right proper English gentleman. He's got that more educated English accent, and he's got this deep voice, and he's a chiseled jaw, handsome young man, but he's very green, doesn't doesn't really know what he's doing, I don't think. And interestingly, they also have a corporal part of their platoon who uh, is is a black guy, who sounds like he's Jamaican or or from the Bahamas or someplace like that, which brings up all kinds of interesting notions of, you know, relics of the British Empire, where they're getting recruits into their army, not just from England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, they're getting recruits into their army who are from all these other vestiges of the empire still. You know, classic imperialism is using people from one part of your empire to help police other parts of your empire. So recruit soldiers from Ireland and send them to India. Recruit soldiers from Jamaica and send them to Ireland. That kind of thing. That way you're sending a lot of people, at least not everybody, but a lot of the people you're sending to one part of your empire are not people with loyalties. They're not from that part of the empire. So they're more likely to see those people as alien and to, you know, be willing to use more force than if they were being sent into their own neighborhood with their own people. Now, once they're at their barracks in Belfast, the men of Hook's platoon are briefed on their overall mission, which is to support the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which again tended to be, especially at that time, it gets some reforms later, but especially back then was overwhelmingly staffed by and sympathetic to the Protestant communities. So the the soldiers are to just assist them in policing this particular area that's a trouble spot in Belfast, where you have a Catholic neighborhood and a Protestant neighborhood right next to each other. And that's always a flashpoint. So when they're getting ready to go out and patrol this one neighborhood, Lieutenant Armitage has his men wear berets rather than sort of riot gear helmets in an effort to present a friendlier appearance. Because as he says, we want these people to understand we're here for their own good. You know, we're here to help protect them. Something that the Catholic neighborhoods are unlikely to ever think, no matter how friendly a British soldier is trying to be. There's just too many centuries of bad blood there. I'm sorry. But, you know, Lieutenant Armitage is sort of this Dudley Do-Right guy trying to do the best he can. So he says something like, we're here to look these people in the eye and let them know that we want to protect them or something like that. 
Funny thing is, though, he tells his men to leave their their riot helmets and stuff that they do have and to, you know, wear berets and try to be friendly. They do bring their L1A1 rifles, which are the, the British version of the FAL. So, yeah, they're not wearing riot gear, but they're carrying around these big ass battle rifles through these neighborhoods. But still, other than their rifles, they actually look less like a military force than some of the cops that they work with. Well, anyway, their convoy heads out to go uh, patrol this one neighborhood and assist the Ulster Constabulary in doing some searches. Initially, they get lost. And when they get out of their vehicles in a Catholic neighborhood, some children show up and begin throwing water balloons and some other stuff at them and taunting them. And it's interesting because some of the soldiers laugh and are amused by it. I mean, these are little kids doing this, but other soldiers get all angry and so on. Now, these neighborhoods they're going through look all post-apocalyptic. They've got destroyed vehicles, some of them on fire, set up as barricades on the streets. It looks like an urban version of the Road Warrior. And they really did a good job on a relatively modest budget of getting this just urban destroyed war zone type setting looking very realistic. Now, the soldiers are lost in this area, getting stuff thrown at them by kids. And then, thankfully for their navigation, some RUC guys show up and help them find their way to the right place that they were supposed to go to. And what they do is they get to this one neighborhood and the soldiers sort of just set up in the street as lookout while the RUC cops start just searching house to house for guns. They're just going through. And you have to understand during the troubles, the British authorities operating in Northern Ireland had like no restrictions on them. It was a classic case of in the name of fighting terrorism, all usual legal rights and due process and constitutional provisions and so on are all suspended. And so all kinds of things that would normally not be done in a UK jurisdiction were done routinely in Northern Ireland. This is just one example. Searching houses through an entire neighborhood instead of just, oh, we have a warrant for this one guy to look for this one type of stuff. Now, this is an interesting scene that depending on where you live on, who knows, maybe coming to a neighborhood near you one day. But you have these unarmed, angry civilians coming out of their homes to confront and basically just yell at the soldiers who are watching the streets and the RUC beats the shit out of some people and they're ransacking houses. And it's just a a terrible thing to watch. And hook seems to be disturbed by some of this abusive treatment that he witnesses being inflicted on civilians, including women and children both in the streets and in their own homes. He has to run inside a house at one point, I think to ask somebody a question or do something like that. And he sees, you know, homes being ransacked, people being treated just like scum by the RUC and out in the street, the confrontation between angry people and the soldiers starts to escalate into a riot. And the people of the neighborhood at one point begin throwing rocks and bricks at the soldiers. Lieutenant Armitage tries to keep his men disciplined and prevent them from firing at the people. But there's kind of a a, a scuffle and, and some chaos. And in the melee, a young boy manages to run in and grab the rifle of one soldier who had been hit by a rock and had been knocked down by it. He runs off with this L1A1 rifle. 
Hook and one other soldier pursue after the kid to get the rifle back. And it's in doing that that they get separated from their unit. And their unit soon, because of the riot and all that stuff, the unit soon uh, jumps back into their vehicle and leaves the area. But Hook and this other guy are stranded because they chase this kid around the block. Now, as they're chasing this kid with the rifle, Hook and the other soldier get jumped by a group of teenagers who take their rifles and beat the shit out of Hook and the other guy until a neighborhood lady shows up and stops them. You know, a fellow Catholic from the neighborhood, but kind of a good Samaritan who didn't want to see these soldiers get beaten to death in, you know, her street. But then just as this neighborhood lady is stopping the teenagers from beating on these soldiers, an IRA man walks up and shoots Hook's comrade, killing him on the spot. Hook manages to run away and the gunmen pursue him and there's a crazy chaotic chase, but Hook manages for the time being to get away. And the rest of the film chronicles Hook trying to get back to you know, his his barracks to his men through a very hostile and dangerous city and all the things he goes through. Meanwhile, there are IRA men because now they know there's a British soldier they killed and there's another one that got away. They're trying to track him down and take him out. And um, he runs into a lot of other things that you wouldn't expect. And the the rest of the film just goes through this story of the rest of Hook's night trying to get through all this. And, you know, for the sake of not spoiling any more of the plot, I won't detail too much more of the rest of the story from that point onward. Again, go check it out for yourself if interested. But I'll just say at one point, Hook gets injured pretty badly. And there's a another Catholic Good Samaritan, this time kind of a middle-aged man who helps him out. And it turns out that this middle-aged man is actually a veteran of the British Army, was a medic, and he helps without any anesthesia helps sew hooks wounds up and that sort of thing. And the clip I played you at the beginning of the episode was that guy, that good Samaritan. I forget what his name was in the movie after he sews up hook. And you might hear in the background in that clip hook is almost kind of like sobbing. Cause he just went through all this terrible pain where he was screaming. But, um, that's when that guy says what he says about war and about his experience in the army. So just to give you the context of what that scene was, now, my overall assessments of the film, it was filmed in a very stark, very realistic style that perfectly fit the story that was being told. It was, for the most part, a very tight, very fast-paced action film, but it was realistic, often brutally so. And it was realistic in contrast to your typical Hollywood action movies where they have these ridiculously unrealistic, these cartoonish fights and chases, you know, fights in most Hollywood action movies, whether we're talking hand to hand or talking gunfights, they look nothing, nothing like what a real fist fight or gunfight or street fight, you know, looks like. And I give this movie a lot of credit. It's one of those rare movies where all of the fights, all of the chases have that that gritty, brutal, realistic. It's not pretty to watch. It doesn't look like a finely choreographed ballet scene like the fights in a typical Van Damme movie or the fights in uh, that Keanu Reeves movie. What was it called? John Wick, where it's just I mean, it's finely choreographed ballet dancing with guns or with fists or whatever. The fights in this whether with fists or with knives or with hands look real. The chases look real. Things go wrong. Shit happens. Chaos, right? Um, the, the movie depicts this in a brutally honest fashion. This is 
in my to my knowledge and in my opinion much closer to what these sorts of things actually look like what you see in 71 this movie is to the best of my knowledge historically accurate in terms of how things would have looked right down to the types of weapons and gear the cars even other early 70s things like the clothing the hairdos the big sideburns the mustaches and so on it all is period accurate to the early 70s The film does a great job showing the evils of both sides. Both the nationalists and the loyalist terrorists are consumed with hatred, dehumanize their enemies, and are willing to commit blatantly evil things in the names of their ideologies and their grievances. And both sides are happy to use children for their cause in various ways. Even some of Hook's own British Army comrades are shown to be bad, particularly there's these guys who are not part of Hook's unit who are kind of separate. And they're, I forget what their unit, what they referred to it as. It wasn't SAS. I think it was some kind of like military intelligence thing, but they're some sort of special ops type guys. And in particular, they're up to some things that they probably shouldn't be up to. And uh, I'll mention more about them in a moment, but I'll try not to give away any of the twists regarding that. But the film also is balanced, though, because it does show good Samaritans on the various sides, including even on the Catholic side, that there are decent people who don't want to see some guy get murdered in cold blood, even if it is a damn British soldier. Another thing the film does well is it shows that there are lots of divisions, even within the different organizations or factions. So, for example, they show there's this generational plus ideological divide within the IRA even where the younger guys are more radical and also more violent and bloodthirsty. They have no sense of restraint, whereas some of the older IRA guys still have enough humanity in them that they're willing to observe some degree of kind of gentleman's rules between themselves and the Brits. And this to me illustrates, I think, a very important theme of any war and of any honest history of warfare and violence, which is the corrosive effects of war over time and over generations. The longer a conflict goes on, the more it corrodes everybody's morals and civility. And so a generation that knows nothing but war is probably going to be the most corroded of all. So interesting thought experiment. What has been the effect of decades of the war on drugs or the war on terror in the United States? Has that had corrosive effects? The film does a good job showing how the British Army, which was supposedly during this time trying to play the role of just peacekeeper between the Protestant and Catholic factions, is clearly not doing so. And again, we see some covert ops going on what in the u.s would probably be jsoc stuff taking place wherein you've got these special men in the british army who are dressing in civilian clothes and have you know long civilian hairdos and they're almost sort of like undercover guys and they're actually helping the loyalist terrorists And later we even find out that in some ways they're playing both sides and we see how they're willing to do whatever it takes to cover up their misdeeds. And again, I won't get more specific than that so as not to ruin any more plot. This is one of the relatively few films I've seen that I think does a good job depicting the role that chaos and accident play in war. In contrast to the orderly depiction of war that you get from most standard history books, which focus on the presidents and generals kind of 
bird's eye view perspectives. But in reality, as anyone can tell you, if you talk to people who have been in actual battle, when you're down on the ground level where the grunts are and where people are getting killed and maimed, it's always much more of a nasty, chaotic mess. And there's always a lot more influence from things like accidents and mistakes and snafus than people usually want to admit or than is depicted in most like Hollywood war movies. So, for example, I think films like Black Hawk Down and Saving Private Ryan, especially the Omaha Beach opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, also do a good job of capturing that just nasty violence and chaos and just accidents and things going wrong. And you know that that's more of what battle is really all about than this orderly sort of chess match where everyone's lining up in neat rows and maneuvering and all that sort of thing. I base this of course, not on any personal experience in combat. I don't have any, don't particularly want any, but I base it on what I've heard and read from people who've really been in it. That war is a nasty, chaotic mess. It's a lot more disorderly. It's a lot more chaotic than people usually appreciate who haven't either been in it or at least done what I've done and listened to and read a lot of people who have. At the point of the spear, it's a nasty, brutal, chaotic, crazy mess. And it always has been and it always will be. And keep in mind, too, that when you have war in an urban area that's in and amongst civilians, it's only going to be worse in that regard than kind of a standard classic war between two organized army. That's going to be nasty and chaotic enough once the blood starts to flow. But you've got stuff going on in a dense urban population where most people are just, you know, civilians trying to live their lives. It's going to be bad. And this is a movie, again, Black Hawk Down or some of the scenes in Saving Private Ryan are a few examples that are also like this in my mind. This is a movie that is starkly honest in its depiction of just brutality and pain and suffering of these things. You know, someone gets shot or stabbed. They don't just like a cartoon bad guy in some 80s action movie just like dramatically flop on the ground and they're stone dead. No, they're screaming, they're bleeding, they're suffering. Whether they die or don't die there's a lot of nasty, ugly suffering. This is not a happy movie. This is not a movie to watch when you just want to pick me up, but it's a movie that has a lot of important truths to share, I think. Not just about this particular conflict, although it does, of course, you know, reveal a lot of truths about this, but about war in general and modern war in particular. It has a lot to say about what's known as fourth-generation war, Uh, Fourth generation warfare is a topic I'm going to talk about some in a future episode. I won't get into here, but I'll just mention it briefly in passing so you can look it up for yourself if you want to. Fourth generation warfare, sometimes abbreviated 4GW. This is sort of the war of popular insurgency. And all of the horrors of war are always even more horrible when you're looking at counterinsurgency type wars than when you're just looking at sort of standard, you know, army versus army wars. Most of these British soldiers who are being sent into this are barely old enough to even be soldiers. And some of the IRA men are even younger than that. And while probably some of the RUC cops and the British soldiers and the IRA men, probably some of these guys were psychopaths or whatever even if this conflict hadn't have been there, they would have been that way. I would still say that probably many of them would have been peaceful 
decent people if they were in different circumstances and that it's one of the tragedies of imperialism war nationalism statism one of the most horrific tragedies is that it turns many people who would not have ever been violent killers into violent killers often in the name of false causes And all these young combatants, whatever side they're on, they're just pawns in the game. And they're being turned into these monsters by the circumstances. This movie also shows the lunacy of peacekeeping operations. The notion that you can put troops into the middle of some violent war between two factions someplace. And they can actually successfully, you know, fairly keep the two sides from still trying to fight each other or whatever. It's impossible They're going to end up taking one side or the other. Even if they don't, it's going to look like they are to at least one of the factions that they're trying to keep the peace between, if not both. So, you know, the insanity of sending British soldiers to keep the peace in these Northern Irish neighborhoods when the Catholics at least have hundreds of years of history of seeing the British government as the ultimate enemy. And like what the British government really thought this was going to go over smoothly This film, I think, gives a glimpse of how wars on insurgents always, whether deliberately or just by sort of the default logic of events, wars against insurgents, popularly supported insurgents, always turn into wars against the civilian population. They have to. There's no other way for it to turn out. And of course, as they start waging war more and more against this, the friendly civilian population that's supporting the insurgency, this pretty much almost always tends to lead to greater civilian support for the insurgents, not less. If you're an American unfamiliar with this history, you might be surprised by how much of like almost a ghetto type situation is going on here. If you're not already familiar with Northern Irish history, but You know, it looks like to Americanize that you've got these two almost identical groups of white people who ethnically look pretty much the same, talk basically the same, you know, the Northern Irish Protestants versus the Northern Irish Catholics, but they just have, you know, religious denomination differences. But the separation of and the treatment of Catholics in Northern Ireland in the mid mid to late 20th century was often strikingly similar to what blacks faced in America during the same time period. And I think it's important to understand that the state, rather than the religious differences themselves, the state is the ultimate cause of the violence, as far as I'm concerned. Because by comparison, Protestants and Catholics, whether or not they always like each other or always agree with each other, they mostly live and work with each other peacefully in the United States. They're not trying to blow each other up. They're not consistently segregated into different neighborhoods and whatever in the United States. And to my mind, that's mostly obviously because of the the separation of church and state in the United States. It's certainly far from perfect. And there's always people who are trying to attack that separation. But it is the reason that in the United States, Catholics and Protestants, for the most part, most of the time, I know there have been some cases of violence in some of the big cities in the 19th century and so on. But most of the time, Catholics and Protestants in America, whatever they might think about each other and each other's beliefs, they rarely try to blow each other up because they don't have control of the state as their objective because the state is in America, at least supposed to be 
neutral in regards to religion. And I'd say for the most part, it is neutral by comparison to how biased it was in Northern Ireland for so long, that this allows people to have religious differences and disagreements without trying to blow each other up. So anyway, long story short, to me, the culprit in the Northern Ireland conflict is the state more so than the two different you know, religious belief systems. Not to say once the state is there that the the different, you know, Catholic and Protestant church officials don't play into the game. They clearly do. My point is more that if the state wasn't in the business of favoring or disfavoring certain religious groups, it wouldn't be nearly as likely to escalate into the violence that it did. When the state exists, the more it involves itself in the economy and the social affairs of people, the more incentive there always is going to be for religious groups to try to get influence or control of the state in order to use it to help their group against the other group or groups in a zero sum game. This is why there's so much violence in so many parts of the world having to do with religion. It's always or almost always about who gets to control the state and use it to benefit themselves and screw the other groups. The state is a zero-sum game, whereas by contrast, the market is about mutual benefit. Had there not been the state to deal with, with its historic bias against the Catholics there, and of course, like I mentioned before, its high degree of socialism, which gave the state even more resources to discriminate with, there's much less reason that Protestants and Catholics couldn't have eventually, sooner than they did, put aside some of their differences, whether they loved each other or not is irrelevant, but simply to be willing to live side by side without constantly trying to blow each other up. And one of the things that has changed and Northern Ireland is actually typically from what I've heard the last 10, 15 years, a very quiet and peaceful part of Europe. I think the key was that the state in Northern Ireland started to really be more fair in regards to religious denominations and certainly far from perfect, of course, but by reducing the degree to which the state was clearly paying fa- playing favorites there, it's reduced the animosity and reduced the violence. And, you know, I'm sure there are lessons to be learned for something like the Israel Palestine conflict, but whether anyone is going to have their eyes open to learn them is another question entirely. But just to, sort of wrap up, I wanted to mention, I can't remember if I have before on this podcast or not, that studying Irish history and particularly studying the Northern Irish troubles in detail in grad school was for me actually one of the key things that made me decisively start to reject the entire U.S. war on terror. Prior to that, I was critical of a lot of the approach and the tactics and strategies the U.S. government was using in the war on terror, but I still basically agreed with the general concept. But when I studied the troubles in Northern Ireland, I was looking at a fight that I didn't have personally a dog in the way I did psychologically in the U.S. war on terror because of all the propaganda and brainwashing I had gone through. You know, I was still to some degree in kind of nationalist matrix land. I wasn't crazy about it, but I still kind of had that sympathy of thinking the U.S. government really was looking out for my interests and whatever. And so I was willing to criticize some of the things they did with the war on terror, but not the overall thing until I studied 
the so-called terrorism in Northern Ireland, the Troubles, and both why it happened, how it happened, the various ways that the authorities tried to deal with it, and how often the more you crack down, the more you actually strengthen the very people that you're supposedly trying to you know, reduce or eliminate. Fourth generation warfare, one of the key lessons of it is if you're fighting an enemy that's using fourth generation warfare, the harder you crack down, the more heavy firepower and force you use, the stronger they are going to get. It's just how it works. I'll try to remember in the show notes to link to at least one article about fourth generation warfare. But anyway, by studying the terrorism and the approach to suppressing it that the authorities took in the case of Northern Ireland, I didn't personally have like a feeling of psychological, a psychological stake in the whole thing of being on one side or the other. And so I was able to look at it more objectively. And then I was able to take those lessons I learned from studying that conflict and view the United States government's actions post 9-11 and even pre 9-11 to a degree through that same prism. And that actually, for me, was one of the decisive things in causing me to just completely reject the entire thing and was another step on my road within a few more years after that to ultimately losing all of my faith in the state completely and embracing the uh, beliefs of anarchism instead. So I think that's an important lesson that when you study a phenomenon that involves countries and peoples that you don't really viscerally, emotionally identify with, it often provides an unbiased, objective lens through which to analyze analogous situations involving groups that you do have some sort of emotional identification with. So again, I was not yet an anarchist at the time I studied the Troubles, and it was key in helping me reject the entire idea of the war on terror. So... I recommend this to you as, as one of the benefits of studying history, not just deeply, but broadly and studying many time periods in many different countries and civilizations is that very often the lessons you learn from studying some very foreign time period or very foreign culture to your own are lessons that can then later help you gain greater insights into understanding the history of your own particular corner of the world in a more fair manner. So overall, I give 71 four out of four stars. It's not a movie for the squeamish or the faint of heart. It's certainly not a happy, happy sunshine movie, but sometimes I think it's valuable to look these things squarely in the face and to understand that these ideas that we talk about on this show and in many other venues that are part of this new counterculture movement helping people to awaken to liberty and really understanding what things are all about and and what's really right and wrong and what's really true and false, that it is important every now and then to look some of the darker truths in the face and be reminded that this isn't just an intellectual exercise or game, that there are real world consequences to believing good things or believing wrong things. There are real-world consequences to being deluded by false beliefs. If you have any comments that are relevant to this particular episode, please feel free to leave them in the comment section for this episode at my website, profcj.org. And you can email me any questions, comments, whatever related to this episode or anything else. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show in a whole bunch of different ways I have on my website, including 
iTunes, Stitcher, things like that. Remember, there are several ways you can support the show. One is to help spread the word in any venue you have available to you to people you think might enjoy the show. Also, consider leaving a review or a rating in iTunes or Stitcher. That might encourage other people to give the show a shot as well. And also remember, if you like this show, you enjoy it, you want to have it stick around and continue to grow and improve, you can help out the show financially. I appreciate it very much. You can donate directly. Go to profcj.org slash donate, where you can donate via uh, Bitcoin, PayPal. Also coming relatively soon, not sure when I'll get it done, but I will have a Patreon option I'm planning on so you can sign up to donate a set amount per episode and things like that. That ought to be a a great way to help out as well once that's up. You can also help the show out financially by purchasing items from Amazon.com by going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my show, uh, on my website. And if you do that, I get a small commission at no extra cost to you. Huge thank you to everyone who's donated or bought anything from my Amazon links recently. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I hope you found my review and remarks about the movie 71 uh, interesting, enlightening, and thought-provoking. Hope, as always, that I haven't wasted your time. It is a great movie. I do recommend it if it's you know something that sounds like it might be interesting to you. And I guess that's it. This has been Prof. CJ helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.